Chapter Two of Anything Once by Douglas Grant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Anything Once by Douglas Grant. Chapter Two. Partners. For a moment, James Botts turned his head away, lest she should see the deep red flood of shame which had suffused his face. Poor little skinny, homely orphan kid, thrown out to buck the world for herself, and stopping in her first flight from injustice to help a stranger, only to have him think her a possible criminal. He was glad that his back twinged and his head throbbed. He ought to be kicked out into the ditch and left to die there for harboring such thoughts. He was a cur, and she, hang it, there was something appealing about her in spite of her looks. Perhaps it was the sturdy self-reliance, which in itself betrayed her utter innocence and ignorance of the world, that made a fellow want to protect her. In his own circle, James Botts had never been known as a Sir Galahad, but he had been away from his own circle for exactly nineteen eventful days now, and in that space of time he had learned much. His heart went out in sympathy as he turned once more to her. But at the moment Lou Lacey seemed in no momentary need of sympathetic understanding. She was pursuing a hapless frog with well-directed shots of small pebbles, and there was an impish grin upon her face. "'How old are you?' he asked suddenly. Lou shrugged. "'I don't know. About seventeen or eighteen, I reckon.' At least they told me six years ago that I was twelve, and I've kept track ever since. When I was sixteen, though, and it was time for me to be got a place somewhere, the matron put me back a couple of years. We were getting more babies from the poor farm than usual, and I was kinder handy with them. She had to let me go now because one of the visiting deaconesses let out that she'd seen me there sixteen years ago herself and I was toddling round then. Oh, I missed him! The frog, with a triumphant plop, had disappeared beneath a flat, submerged stone, and Lou turned to note her companion's pain-drawn face. I'm going to fix that bandage on your head again, she declared as she sprang to her feet. Is your back hurting you very much? Not very. He forced a smile, but his face was grave, for, despite his suffering, the problem which this accidental meeting had forced upon him filled his thoughts. What was he to do with this girl? In spite of the statement that she had kept track of her last few years, he could not credit the fact that she was approximately eighteen. Fourteen would be nearer the guess he would have made, and it was unthinkable that a child like that should wander about the country alone. He could not bear the thought of betraying her innocent confidences by handing her over to the nearest authorities. It would mean her being held as a vagrant, and possibly sent to the county poor farm. Perhaps the people with whom she had been placed were not so bad, after all. If he took her back and reasoned with them, insisted upon their keeping to their bargain and giving her lighter tasks to perform. Then he remembered his own appearance, and smiled ruefully. 
Instead of listening, they would in all probability set the dog on him. Perhaps he could persuade her to return of her own accord. "'The people you were working for, their name was Hess?' he asked. She nodded as she finished fastening the cool compress about his forehead. "'Henry Hess and his wife, Frida, and—and and Max.' Something in the quality of her tone, more than her hesitation, made him demand sharply, "'Who is Max?' "'Their son.' Her voice was very low, but for the first time it trembled slightly. "'You don't like him, do you?' He waited a moment, and then added abruptly, "'Why not?' "'Because he's a—a beast. I don't want to talk about him. I don't want even to remember that such things as he is can be let live." James Botts turned and looked at her, and then away, for the childish figure had been drawn up tensely with a sort of instinctive dignity which sat not ill upon it, and from her dark eyes insulted womanhood had blazed. "'I'd like to go back and lick him to a standstill.' To his own utter amazement, Botts heard his own voice saying thickly. The fire had died out of Lou's face, and she replied composedly, "'What for? He don't matter any more, does he? We're going on.' The last sentence recalled his problem once more to his mind. What in the world was he to do with this young creature whom fate had thrust upon his hands? Four quarters and a fifty-cent piece represented his entire capital at the moment, and if he did put her into the hands of the county authorities, until his journey was completed and he could make other arrangements for her, it would mean a delay on his part now, when every hour counted for so much just now. "'Do you know how far we are from Hudsondale?' he asked. "'Not more'n two miles.' The farmhands used to walk there often of an evening to the movies. The girl had cleaned her knife in the brook and was now wrapping it in the apron, together with the remains of their repast. They say that not more'n twenty miles from there you can see the big river, but I ain't ever been. That's the way I was going, he observed thoughtlessly. From Hudsondale to Highvale, and right on down the west bank of the river to New York. Lou sat back on her heels reflectively. All right, she said at last. I ain't ever figured on goings as far as New York, but I might as well go there as anywhere, and I guess I can keep up with you now your back's kind of sprained. We'll go along together. James Botts gulped. "'Certainly not,' he retorted severely, when he could articulate. "'It's utterly out of the question. You're not a little child any longer, and I'm not old enough to pose as your father. You must think what people would say.' "'Why must I?' her clear eyes shamed him. "'What's it matter? I guess two can puzzle out the roads better than one.' and if I have been in a brick house with a high fence and a playground between where never a blade of grass grew for about eighteen years, it looks to me as if I could take care of myself a lot better than you can. "'But you don't understand,' he groaned. 
there are certain conditions that I can't very well explain, and if I did, you'd think I had gone crazy. Maybe, Lou observed noncommittally, but she settled herself on the bank once more with such an air of resigned anticipation that he felt forced to continue. You know an army has to obey orders, don't you? He floundered on desperately. Well, I'm like a one-man army. There are a lot of rules I've got to follow. This is Monday afternoon, and I must reach New York by midnight on Saturday. That's ninety miles or more, and you could never make it in the world. I've got just a dollar and a half, and I mustn't beg, borrow, or steal food or a lift or anything, but work my way and never take any job that'll pay me more than twenty-five cents. Of course, if people invite me to get up and ride with them for a little, I can accept, or if they offer me food, but I can't ask. Even the money I earn in quarters here and there I mustn't use for traveling, but only to buy food or medicine or clothes with, and the worst of it is that I cannot explain to a soul why I'm doing all this. Lou regarded him gravely and opened her lips to speak, but closed them again, and for an appreciable moment there was silence. "'Well, I don't see anything in that that says you can't have somebody travin' along with you,' she remarked, and that odd little smile flashed again across her face. "'It don't make any difference to me what you can or can't do. I'm footloose.' Not until later was the meaning of that final statement to be made manifest to her companion. The one fact upon his mind was that nothing he had said had moved her an iota from her original decision. They would go along together. Well, why not? It was obvious that he could not send her back to the Hess farm, nor hand her over to the authorities. His own appearance would not be conducive to confidence in his assurances if he attempted to leave her in the care of some countrywoman until he could return and make proper arrangements for her, and the only alternative was that she must tramp the roads by herself until she found work, and that was out of the question. At least he could protect her, and she looked wiry in spite of her skinniness. It was as possible that she might make the distance as he, with his aching back. But on one point he was determined. When they neared the suburbs of New York, he would telephone to a certain gray-haired, aristocratically high-nosed old lady and persuade her to send out her car for this waif. The child had been kind to him, and he would protect her from all harm, but not for all the gilt-edged securities on Wall Street would he have the story of his knight-errantry get abroad nor his unprepossessing heroine of it revealed to his friends. The old lady would find some suitable position for her, and, as she evidently possessed no reputation of any sort at the moment, a six-day journey in his company could harm it no more if the truth became known than if she had tramped upon her way alone. "'All right,' he said. "'We'll be partners, and I'll do my best to look out for you.' She laughed outright, a merry, tinkling little laugh like the brook rippling over the pebbles at her feet, and the man involuntarily stared. 
That was the sole attractive thing about her that he had observed. "'Reckon it'll be me that'll look after you,' she retorted. "'Oh, there's something coming. Duck in here, quick!' Seizing her bundle, she wiggled like an eel through the willow thicket until she was completely hidden from view, and Botts followed as well as he was able with one hand fending off the supple young shoots from whipping back upon his wounded forehead. He had heard nothing, yet the girl's quick ears had caught the faint creaking of a cart along the road, and now a cheerful but somewhat shrill whistle came to him in a vaguely reminiscent strain. "'That's Lem Maddles,' Lou whispered as she reached behind him and drew the willows yet more screeningly about their trail. "'He's whistlin' Idaho. It's the only tune he can remember.' "'Who is he?' demanded her companion. "'The Hess's next-door neighbor. She'll stop him right away and ask if he's seen me on the road, and they'll all be after me, but they'll never think of the old cow trail.' One of the hands showed it to me and told me it led clear to Hudsondale and came out by the freight yards. For a moment she paused with a little catch in her breath. "'Think you can make it, Mr. Botts?' "'Sure,' he smiled and held out his hand. "'We're partners now, and I'm Jim to my friends, Lou.' "'All right, Jim,' she responded indifferently but she laid her little work-worn hand in his for a brief minute. "'Come on!' With the bundle under her arm once more she led the way, and her partner followed her to where the brook dwindled and the thicket gave place to a stretch of woodland, between the trees of which a faint, narrow trail could be discerned. "'We're all right now if we can keep on going,' announced Lou. "'Nobody comes this way any more.' and the feller said that the tracks runs through the woods clear to the hunky settlement by the yards. Feelin' all right, Jim? I guess so. Jim put his hand to his side, where each breath brought a stab of pain, but brought it down again quickly, lest her swift glance catch the motion. It's pretty in here, isn't it? It's longer, replied Lou practically. And the sun's getting low. Let's hurry. There was little further talk between them, for Jim had already discovered that his companion was not one to speak unless she had something to say, and he was breathing in short snatches to stifle the pain. The track wound endlessly in and out among the trees, and in the dim light he would have lost it altogether more than once had it not been for her light touch upon his arm. At length the track turned abruptly through the thinning trees and led down to a rough sort of road, on either side of which ramshackle wooden tenements leaned crazily against each other, with dingy rags hanging from lines on the crooked porches. Slatternly, dark-skinned women gazed curiously at them as they passed. From somewhere came the squalling of a hurt child and a man's oath roughly silencing it, while through and above all other sounds came the bleating of a harmonica ceaseless reiterating a monotonous foreign air. The sun had set, and from just beyond the squalid settlement 
came the crash and clang of freight cars being shunted together. In spite of his pain, Jim realized that nowhere in this vicinity could his self-constituted companion rest for the night. Open fields or dense woodland were safer far for her. "'Let us cross the tracks and push on up that hill road a little,' he suggested. "'We can't stay here, and they'll think we are tramps if they catch us by the railroad.' "'I guess that's what we are.' Lou wrinkled her already upturned nose. "'But the country would be nicer again, if you ain't give out.' He assured her doggedly that he had not and they crossed the tracks and started up the steep hill road, past the coal dump and the few scattered cottages to where the woodland closed in about them once more. Jim picked up a stout stick and leaned heavily upon it as they plodded along, while the twilight deepened to darkness and the stars appeared. The girl's step lagged now, but she kept up in little spurts and set her lips determinedly. At length they came to another stream, a rushing mill-race this time, with an old mill, moss-covered and fallen into decay beside it, and by tacit consent they sank down on the worn step. "'I don't believe we can go any farther,' Jim panted. "'I guess this is as good a place as any to camp for the night. And you can sleep in there.' He indicated the sagging door behind him and Lou followed his gesture with a reluctant eye. Jim noted the glance and, misunderstanding it, added hastily, "'I don't believe there are any rats in there, but if you'll lend me your matches, I'll see.' "'Rats?' she repeated in withering scorn. "'There was plenty of them in the instant—where I came from. I was just thinking maybe someone else was sleeping in there already.' She handed over the matches, and Jim pushed open the door and entered, feeling carefully for rotten boards in the decayed flooring. A prolonged survey by the flickering light of the matches assured him that the ancient cobwebbed place was deserted, and he turned again to the door, but its step was unoccupied, and nowhere in the starlight could he discern a flutter of that blue-and-white striped dress. Could she have run away from him? At the thought, a forlorn sense of loneliness swept over him greater than he had known since he had started upon his tramp. She was tired out. Could he in some way have frightened her, or had a mad spirit of adventure sent her on like a will-o'-the-wisp into the night? "'Lou!' he called, and his voice echoed back. "'Lou!' All at once he noticed what he had not observed before, a single light by the roadside in a clearing ahead. Perhaps she had gone there for more secure shelter. His cogitations were abruptly interrupted by a dog's excited barking, subdued by distance, but deep-throated. The sound came from the direction of the clearing, and, taking up his heavy stick, Jim hobbled to the road. If Lou had got into any trouble, the barking turned to growls, horrible, crunching growls, which brought his heart up into his throat as he broke into a run, forgetting his pain. 
he had not gained the top of the rise in the road, however, when the growls gave place to wild yelps and howls, which rapidly diminished in the distance, and presently Lou appeared holding carefully before her something round and white, which gleamed in the starlight. "'Good heavens!' he exclaimed when she neared him. "'What on earth have you been doing?' "'Get on back round the other side of the mill,' ordered Lou. "'I gotta go slow or I'll spill it.' "'What is it?' But she vouchsafed him no reply until they reached a ledge of rock over the tumbling stream, well out of sight of that light on the hill. Then she set down the object she was carrying, and he saw that it was a bright tin pan, filled almost to the brim with milk. "'I thought it would go good with our bread and ham,' she explained ingenuously. "'I figured from what I learned at that Hess place that they'd leave some out in the summer cellar to cream, for they ain't got any spring house, and they won't be likely to miss one pan out of fifteen. Besides, there's nothing in them rules you told me that stops me from begging or borrowing or stealing either, and if I give you some of this, you ain't got any call to ask me where it come from. This feminine logic left Jim almost speechless, but he managed to gasp out, The dog! Didn't he attack you? I guess that was what he intended, but I put down the pan and fit him off. She added, with evident pride, I never spilled a drop, either. Good Lord! Jim ejaculated. I believe you'd do anything once. I believe I would, provided I wanted to, Lou agreed placidly. Then her tone changed. There's somebody coming up the road from Hudsondale like all in creation was after him. Indeed, the sound of a horse's mad gallop up the steep road by which they had come was plainly to be heard increasing in volume and the grating jar of wheels as though a wagon were being thrown from side to side. "'Think it's a runaway?' Jim rose and strained his eyes into the darkness at the farther end of the bridge. "'No, driver's drunk, maybe,' Lou responded. "'The horse is dead beat, and he's lashing it on. Listen.' Jim heard the wild gallop falter and drop into a weary trot, only to leap forward again with a wild scramble of hoofs on the rocky road, as though the wretched animal was spurred on by sudden pain, and he clenched his hands. As though reading his thoughts, Lou remarked, "'Only a beast himself would treat a horse that way. The folks at the farm where I was treated theirs something terrible. If he don't look out, he'll go over the side of the bridge.' Jim had already started for the road in front of the mill, and Lou followed him, just as a perilously swaying lantern came to view, showing an old-fashioned carriage of the buggy type, containing a single occupant, and drawn by a horse which was streaked with lather. The light wagon hit the bridge with a bounce, which almost sent it careening over into the rushing stream below, and at the same moment Lou uttered an odd exclamation, more of anger than fear, and straightened up to her full height. "'It's Max!' 
she informed Jim. "'You get back behind the mill. You ain't fit to fight.' "'What do you take me for?' Jim demanded indignantly. "'Max Hess, eh? The fellow who treated you so badly back at that farm? I wanted to get him this morning, the hound. You go straight back into the mill yourself and leave me to handle him.' But he was too late. The wagon had crossed the bridge and halted in front of them so suddenly that the horse slid along for a pace upon his haunches. "'Got yer!' a thick voice announced triumphantly, as a burly figure wrapped the reins around the whip socket and lumbered to the ground. "'Yeah, I thought there was a feller in it somewheres.' He approached them with menacingly clenched fists, but Jim asked coldly, "'Are you addressing this young woman?' "'Young thief, you mean. She's got to come—' but Jim, too, had advanced a pace. "'Take that back and get in your wagon and beat it,' he announced distinctly with a calmness which the other mistook for mildness. "'If your name is Hess, this young woman is not going back with you, and I warn you now to be off.' "'So that's it, is it?' the heavy voice sneered. "'She's my mother's hired girl.' and she stole a lot of food and ran away this morning. Comes a taken in an asylum, brat. Take that back, too, you blackguard. Jim's voice was beginning to shake. Take nothing back, except Lou. What's she doing with you, anyway? Might a knowed she was this sort. He got no further, for something landed like a hammer upon his nose, and the blood streamed down between his thick lips, choking him. With an inarticulate roar of rage, he lowered his bull neck and drove at the other man, but the other man wasn't there. Then another light, stinging blow landed upon his fat face, and he flailed out again with a force that turned him completely around, for again his adversary had danced out of his way. Every drop of bad blood in the lout was aroused now, for he was the bully and terror of his community, and he could not understand this way of fighting, nor why his own blows failed to land, when this tramp could dodge in and punish him apparently whenever he chose. Jim was many pounds lighter, and although the science of boxing was not unknown to him, he was dog-tired and his wrenched back agonized him at every move. The sheer weight of the other man was bearing him down, and Hess seemed to realize it, for with a grunt of satisfaction he swung in and landed a stiff body blow which staggered his adversary. Hess's left eye was closed, and his lips split, but he hammered at his man relentlessly and at length caught him with a blow which brought him to his knees. All the bully's bloodlust boiled at sight of his half-fallen victim, and he drew back his heavily shod foot for a murderous kick, but it was never delivered. Something caught that foot from behind and tripped him heavily into the dust, then landed upon him like a wildcat and bit and tore at him until with a scream of pain he managed to throw it off. 
Even as he struggled to his feet, it sprang again upon him, kicking and clawing, and he turned quickly and, scrambling into the buggy seat, gathered up the reins. Lou stood where he had torn himself from her grasp, listening to the volley of oaths and clatter of horses' feet until both had been swallowed up in the distance. Then she turned to where Jim stood swaying, with one hand pressed to his side, and the blood from the reopened cut upon his forehead making his face look ghastly in the starlight. "'Well,' she remarked with satisfaction, "'I guess he got more'n he come for, and we've seen the last of him.' "'But, Lou,' there was an admiration and awe in his tones, "'your method of fighting isn't in the Queensbury rules, although I must say it was effective. I was going to try to protect you, and it turned out the other way.' "'Don't know what queen you're talking about, nor what rules she made, but when I fight, I fight with everything I've got,' Lou declared with finality. "'Come and let me fix up your head again, and we'll have supper.' An hour later, and throughout the night, a slim little figure, rolled in a man's shabby coat, lay sleeping peacefully in a corner of the mill, while on the doorstep, in his shirt-sleeves and with a stout cudgel across his knees, a weary man drowsed fitfully on guard. End of chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline